Let's turn this morning to the first epistle of Paul, the apostle to Timothy. Chapter 3. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 3, the last verse of the chapter, which I will not reread, is the text. That's verse 16. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. Lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children, in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is the inspired and infallible scripture. Godliness, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the 
Apostle Paul is teaching the young pastor Timothy how things ought to go in the instituted church, and he's impressing upon him the importance of godliness. So important is godliness indeed. Sound doctrine is important, and no spiritually-minded man would ever even begin to consider minimizing the importance of sound doctrine. But sound doctrine is not an end in itself. The goal in the church is not simply the sounding forth of right propositions of truth and the writing of them and even the lodging of them in the minds of the worshipers, but the goal is that the Spirit would take the truth of God's Word and carry it all the way down into the depths of the heart and plant it there so that the good fruit of godliness springs forth godliness. And so the apostle opens this first epistle in chapter 1, stating in verses 3 and 4, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. And the implication there is teach sound doctrine because it and only it bears the fruit of of godliness. And so the goal of all of the office bearers, and they are explicitly addressed here in the first half of chapter 3, and the goal of all of the members of the congregation, the men and the women, the children, the young, the old, is godliness. That, that we may have faith, the knowledge of faith, an increase in the knowledge of faith, so that the more we know of our God and the more we know of Jesus Christ, then the more we live out of that knowledge in all godliness. Godliness is the goal in the church because the very purpose of God when He redeems us is to take us out of this world of darkness, bring us into His kingdom of light, transform us, recreate us after the image of Jesus Christ, so that we may live a godly life to, and here's the ultimate goal, to the praise of His glorious grace. Out of darkness, into His light, to show forth His praises. So important is godliness that after the apostle establishes, it establishes in verse 15 that the church, like Grace Protestant Reformed Church here, is in the world the pillar and ground of God's truth, so that the church holds up God's truth. Then the apostle goes on in this text, the very next verse, and, and now he teaches us exactly what is, that one great truth that the church holds up, and it is, the great mystery of godliness. So let's consider it. The great mystery of godliness. First of all, the mystery of godliness. Second, the greatness of it. And third, the faithfulness to it. Godliness, that's a really simple concept. Even for little children, right? The very word tells us what godliness is. Godliness is simply living your whole life unto God out of love for God, according to the will of God, in harmony with the Word of God, for the praise of God. Godliness is eschewing all that is evil and living your whole life unto God 
Indeed, it characterizes one's whole life. It includes our life as citizens, citizens of the nation state. So that the apostle teaches in chapter 2, verse 2, pray for kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. It includes the whole life of the woman in the church, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with all good works. It includes the whole of our life, which may then draw persecution. So that the apostle teaches in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Does not the Reformed faith emphasize the importance of godliness when it teaches in the 61st article of the church order that no one may be admitted to the Lord's Supper except those who make a profession of the Christian religion and are reputed to be of a godly walk. And isn't that truth underscored in Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which teaches that one of the benefits of of being godly and living in good works is that others may be gained to Christ. Godliness. And while it refers to the whole life of the believer, certainly it's more than the outward and external, a mere appearance of morality, because anyone can pay their taxes to Caesar. Any woman can dress in modest apparel. Anyone can read from the Bible and come twice to the house of the Lord on the Sabbath and still be a hypocrite. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says of some that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. So that godliness is the whole of the life lived unto God, but rooted in and arising out of a heart of faith and love for God. Godliness. Now, the point of the apostle in the text is to teach us something about the great mystery of godliness. For he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The biblical word mystery means something hidden, a secret thing. The biblical word mystery doesn't refer to some inexplicable enigma that is so complicated and no one would ever be able to figure it out. That's not a mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something that can be known, maybe not necessarily fully comprehended, but it can be known only for the time being. It's covered up. It's hidden. Just like if you buy someone a gift and you put it in a box and you wrap it in paper and then you give it to the recipient, well, that's a mystery. Not because what's in the box is something very, very complicated and they'll never be able to figure it out, but because for now it's hidden. It's covered. So in Scripture, a mystery is something God announces, but for now he's kept it covered up until the time of the unveiling 
The revelation of that mystery for people to see. Now the great mystery of the Scriptures is God's plan from all eternity to save the whole world. Of elect Jews and elect Gentiles in the person of His Son incarnate, crucified and raised from the dead. And all throughout the old dispensation, that mystery was boxed up. Now, of course, God gave pictures and he would teach his people so that they had some idea of what was in that box. But it, re- it wasn't really until Pentecost that God opened up the box and he unveiled the mystery. I'm going to save the whole world. The whole world of elect Jews and elect Gentiles in the person of my son. Paul, here. And then he gives Paul this box, and he says, you're my apostle to the Gentiles. Now you go preach this, the uncovering of this mystery, to the whole world. And so, Colossians 1, 25 and 26, Paul says, Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. One specific element of that great mystery of all the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached in all the world, is what this text calls the great mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is the source and the power of godliness hidden. There's something called the power of godliness. Remember 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So you could picture a little cube-shaped jewelry box, but now inside that little box is not something visible, something tangible. It's something spiritual. It's something heavenly. It's the source and the power of godliness. The power whereby we are able to live in this world under the head of state and willingly pay our taxes to the Caesar. It's the power whereby a woman is able to live in this immodest world and be modest before God. It's the power whereby a Christian is able to live unto God, even when there's threats of persecution and loss, and keep living unto God. It's the power for an office bearer to have one wife and to love her, if he's married. And, and then you follow all the rest of the descriptors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. To be a godly man in office. It's tremendous spiritual heavenly power. And now the mystery of godliness is that source, that power of godliness that's boxed, that's hidden, that's covered. When Adam transgressed the commandment of God, he died spiritually under the judgment of God and Adam became ungodly so that there was no reverential fear of God in his heart. In fact, he hated God and he's the head of the human race so that all his posterity became ungodly. And that raised a question in this dark world of sin and iniquity, how it will ever be possible for a human being to be godly Because 
We're not godly by nature. We don't even have a desire to be godly, and we do not have any right to be godly. How can it be that a man can be godly, or a woman, or a child can be godly? What's the source? What's the power of godliness? Well, that's hidden. That's covered up. It's a mystery. And the only way you can know the mystery is if God opens up the box, if he he takes off the cover. The mystery of godliness. Well, God did unveil that mystery when according to his counsel in the fullness of time, he opened up the womb of the Virgin Mary and he brought forth his only begotten son born of a woman. The mystery of godliness is a person. Is Jesus And that's the teaching of the text and everything that follows the colon. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, colon. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. Justified in the spirit. That's Jesus. Seen of angels. That's Jesus. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. Jesus is the great mystery of godliness. Through the old dispensation as it were. It was Jesus who was covered up in that box. And it's not that Israel had no idea. Because God would give pictures. He would give types and shadows. So that they had some understanding of what was in this box being covered up. Just like if someone gives you a little cube shaped jewelry box as a gift. You know you're not getting a decorative wall hanging. You know you're not getting a bottle of wine. You know you're getting jewelry. Probably a ring. But you don't know exactly what kind of ring it is. It's covered up. So Israel knew. They had an idea of what was in that box. That that Savior who was coming. But they didn't see yet. So... God opens up the box, and that's what he did in the incarnation when he came to Mary as she was holding her little baby. And he says, you see, Mary, this is the great mystery of godliness. Now go to the temple. He's in the temple. My my servant Simeon, his eyes want to behold my salvation before he departs into glory. Let him see the babe And when he laid his eyes upon the little child Jesus, God was opening up the box to Simeon. Simeon, now you see the great mystery of godliness, the source and the power of godliness. And that was fully revealed at the time of Pentecost. And there's the the answer of the gospel to the question in this dark, sin-cursed world. How is it ever possible for anyone anywhere ever to be godly? There he is, Christ And Him in you by His Spirit. And that's the source. And that's the power of godliness. It's Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. And so here's the church now in the new dispensation. The pillar and the ground of truth. What truth? What one great truth does the church hold up before all the mosques? All the temples. All the shrines. All the kingdoms and nations and kings of men. The one great truth is Jesus Christ who is the mystery of godliness. Great 
is that mystery. The apostle teaches in the text, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then after that colon comes six brief statements which teach us just how great, how amazing is this mystery of godliness. Six statements. Notice about them, just generally a moment, that they align basically, chronologically, with the time of our Lord on this earth. So, we begin, number one, God manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Number two, justified in the Spirit. That's the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to that. Number three, seen of angels. That's after the resurrection. Number four and number five, they go together, preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world between the resurrection and then what's number six, the ascension received up into glory. Now, strictly speaking, number four and number five, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, they occur after number six, the ascension. They're still occurring today, and they will to the end of time. But the apostle takes those two, and he puts them in front of number six, the ascension, first, because that's really the summary of the Great Commission, which Jesus gave right before his ascension. Go into all the world and preach me, that I may believe, be believed on. And the apostle puts four and five before six, because he wants one, one, God in our flesh, and he wants six, six as the climax, received up into glory. Six brief statements expressing just how great is the mystery of godliness. Let's consider them. Number one, God manifest in the flesh. That, of course, refers to the incarnation when the second person of the Holy Trinity took our flesh in Mary's womb. And that simple statement of the text establishes the truth of Jesus over against all heresies and especially these three statements. Number one, Jesus is God. You would never say of a man that he's manifest in the flesh. You can only say that of God. And in fact, the text does explicitly. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Number two, Jesus is man. For he is God manifest in the Flesh. He really took flesh. And number three, Jesus is one person, Jesus, having a God nature, divine nature, and having a man, human nature. God manifest in the flesh. In order for us to be redeemed unto godliness, God must be manifest in the flesh. And what a great thing that is that God was manifest in the flesh because flesh is the Scripture's term to emphasize the humiliation of our humanity. That our humanity is so weak that the body, soul, composition of the human being is so weak. And so the Scriptures say all flesh is grass. 
nothing but grass. We, in our fallen nature, we being human beings, we are like grass. How in the world will little blades of grass ever be able to reach up into the highest heavens, lay a hold of the power of godliness, even desire to be godly? We're nothing but flesh. Well, God, of course, is always first. And in the great mystery of godliness, too, in order for us to be godly, God, the great, invisible, triune, eternal, infinite, God of all glory, God must be manifest in our flesh. And He was in the Incarnation. What condescension in our flesh. That is our humanity. Weakened humanity. Second, the mystery of godliness is so great that God was not only manifest in the flesh, but justified in the spirit. That is, Jesus was publicly declared righteous, justified, in the spirits raising him from the dead. You see, when God became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, in the incarnation, he not only became a man, but to that man, as the head of all of the elect, was imputed all of the guilt of the elect, so that Jesus was rendered guilty for all of our ungodliness. And so God had him crucified on that cross, and God declared guilty. Jesus, guilty for the sins of all my people. That was justly done. And then all the wicked world, they assembled at the cross, and they said, unjustly, he's guilty. He's a Sabbath desecrator. He is a seditious fellow. He's a blasphemer. He's a malefactor. Crucify him with the robbers and the thieves. God, justly, Condemned him guilty. The whole wicked world unjustly condemned him guilty and he dies. Then the Holy Spirit was breathed forth into the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea on Sunday morning and the Holy Spirit quickened Jesus unto a new life. Now sometimes the Bible says that God raised him. Sometimes in the Bible Jesus says, I raised myself. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. He was referring to the temple of his body in his resurrection. Or, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Sometimes the Bible says, the Spirit raised him. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. When the Spirit was breathed into the tomb, He raised Jesus from the dead so that Jesus came out of that tomb victorious. And at that moment, He was publicly declared righteous. Having been hanging on that cross condemned, now coming out of the grave, that was the declaration. He's righteous with His own righteousness. And he's righteous with a righteousness for all of his people. And the Holy Spirit even sealed that unto Jesus' own human spirit. 
so that Jesus was justified in the Spirit. That is, he was publicly declared righteous in the Spirit's raising him from the dead. And it must be for you and me to be godly. He must die for our ungodliness. He must obtain a righteousness for us. And he must obtain the quickening spirit for us that the spirit may be breathed into us and we too be godly. God manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. So great is the mystery of godliness that, number three, he was seen of angels. After his resurrection, he was seen of men and angels. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, says that Christ was seen of Cephas, and he was seen of the twelve, and he was seen of five hundred, and he was seen of James, and he was seen of Paul. And now that verb seen is the same verb in this text. So that though we're not told of any specific instance, other than of course there were the two angels at the tomb, resurrection morning, he was also seen of angels, the heavenly angels. And what a wonderful opportunity for them because they were all there in the beginning when Adam deliberately transgressed the commandment of God and became, and with his whole posterity, became ungodly. And now the great question, even from the perspective of the angels, is how will anyone, anywhere, ever be godly in this dark and sinful world? And so they want to know. Peter talks of that in his first epistle. He talks about how the angels desire to look into the things of our salvation. The angels want to behold that box and what's in it, as much as any Israelite does, what what really is the great mystery of godliness. And so it's only fitting that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was not only seen of so many different men, but somehow in some way he appeared unto the angels of heaven so that not only those on earth, but even those in heaven could look and behold the great mystery of godliness. Jesus Scene of angels. Four and five go together. They're inseparable. Preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. So when God finally opened up that box revealing the great mystery, He gave it, as it were, to Paul and said, Now go. And Paul takes that gospel of the mystery now uncovered and he preaches it to the Gentile nations throughout the whole Roman Empire, preaching. And what happens? According to the eternal decree of God, predestination, wherever that preaching goes, it works faith in the elect. Now what happens? Out of that true faith comes a life of godliness. Preaching works faith from which springs godliness. No preaching, no faith. No faith, no godliness. You look at world history, study the nations. Wherever the gospel doesn't go, no preaching, there's no faith there. They're all idolaters. And there's no godliness there because there's no faith. And even if you find the Buddhists, And they have all their compassion 
That's not godliness. The apostle calls that the form of godliness. No preaching, no faith. No faith, no godliness. How will anyone anywhere ever be godly? From Jerusalem to the Isles of the Sea to Standale, Michigan, anywhere in the whole world. How can it be? There has to be preaching. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great mystery. And where there's preaching, God will work faith. And where there's faith, the Holy Spirit will bring forth godliness to the praise of God's glorious grace. It's so great. The mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then number six, the grand climax, received. He was received. That's why we gather for worship Thursday night. He was received up into glory. Here below, darkness and sin and sorrow and veils of tears. So much glory up there. So much glory. And at His ascension, He was received up into that glory. And there He is. Our mediator, through whom we pray to our God, I'm so sorry for all my ungodliness. And God, for his sake, be merciful and forgive me and make me godly. There he is in glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. There he is, number six. And until he comes back on the last day, he keeps his church faithful to this great mystery so that his church keeps holding it up in the world. That's the teaching of the text in its opening phrase. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness There's no controversy about this. It's true. The mystery of godliness is great. That may be debated. It's not contested. There simply is no controversy. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ makes His church faithful to this great mystery so that there's no controversy. Now, if there is a controversy then Christ will see to it that the cause of that controversy is identified, it's exposed, it's condemned, and it's rooted out because without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That means four things for us this morning. Number one, it means that the faithful church of Jesus Christ here, holding up God's truth in the world, says, No, out, be gone to antinomianism. Antinomianism not only has a controversy with the law, that's what the word means, against law. Antinomianism has a controversy with the person, Jesus, who is the great mystery of godliness. Antinomianism says godliness really isn't all that important. 
And we ought not be urging people, be commanding people to be godly. You must be godly. For then we will bring them back under the bondage of the law. What we need to tell people, all you need to know is you are justified. You hear that? You're justified. And that's it. Doesn't matter you live like a brawler in church office. Doesn't matter you live like a harlot and you're very immodest as a woman. Doesn't matter that you shake your fist against God and Caesar and you disdain the authority of the state. Doesn't matter that you live in all kinds of ungodliness as long as you say, I'm justified. In fact, the more ungodly you are, the better because then the more the grace of God can come to you and forgive you. Antinomianism has a controversy with Jesus, who is the great mystery of godliness. But there is no controversy here. And so if if antinomianism ever shows itself, Christ keeps His church faithful to say, no, out, no controversy here. Second, The faithful church says, because Christ keeps her faithful, says, no, out, be gone to any form of salvation by godliness. To any teaching that there is salvation for us in the law and that we can obtain saving blessings from God by our godliness. Then we have to rewrite the text. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I was born. I lived a godly life. I was justified. People all throughout the world talked about me. And then I was received up into glory. But the text doesn't say anything about you or me. As the content of the great mystery of godliness, it's all God. It's Jesus God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the world, believed on, and received up into glory. Salvation by godliness has a controversy with Jesus. But there is no controversy here. And so if that ever manifests itself, Christ keeps his church faithful to say, Out, be gone. No controversy here. Third, Christ keeps His church faithful to say no, out, be gone to the world. The wicked world. The wicked, ungodly world always has a controversy with Jesus as the great mystery of godliness. Here's one example. Apply it to the youth. Apply it to all of us. If you dress like the world, and you talk like the world, and you curse and swear like the world, and you drink like the world, and you party like the world, you live your life like the world, you're going to have many friends. You will. And you'll probably be pretty popular. But if you live like Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, and you say, we won't do this, not because we're some kind of pietistic people who are very negative and always say no to things. We won't do this because we serve a God who's so great. 
and our life is for Him, then they're going to walk away. Or they're going to come back and they're going to scorn you and ridicule you. And they may even persecute you in a very violent way. The world hates godliness because the world hates Jesus, who is the great mystery of godliness. And if that wicked world ever comes into the church, then Christ will keep his church faithful to say, out, be gone. And that may even mean, in some cases, excommunication, you, so long as you continue in this worldly life. Out. There's no place here for the wicked world because the world has a controversy with the great mystery of godliness and there is no controversy here. Four, and finally, we say no. Christ keeps us faithful to this great mystery so that we say no to the belittling of godliness in our own soul. And life. Sometimes we have our own personal controversy with the great mystery. When we minimize godliness in our own life, and especially when we make excuses for and we ignore our own ungodly lifestyles, our attitudes, and our words, I'm very It's very important to me that you be godly and that you be godly and that they be godly. But what about you? What about me? Is it important to me personally that I be godly? That I'm not always concerned about you and whether you're godly. Am I godly? So the great temptation through all history, not just for 2023, all history is that we slide into dead orthodoxy, that we have all of our doctrine, the propositions are all very clearly stated. They're found in the Reformed Confessions. We're catechized in that truth from the time we're in first grade. We know the whole grand superstructure of the Reformed faith, how everything fits in one perfect united whole. We have all of our T's crossed, our I's dotted. The whole grand expression of the doctrine of Scripture It's sound, and I know it, and can communicate it. But do you love God? Do you actually love God? The great danger is that we know it all, but we don't actually love Him. And therefore, don't actually live in genuine godliness. I can put a nice front and live like a hypocrite so I look godly, but I'm not actually godly. That's the great danger. Now, if that's true of you this morning, you need to repent. And may God lead you to genuine repentance, and me too, and bring us to the cross of our blessed Savior where there's blood to cover us, Don't minimize godliness and have your own personal controversy with it. It's amazing. Even if we only have a small beginning, that's true. Just a small beginning. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing that even one of our children should grow up 
and become godly? Aren't you more and more impressed with that the older you get? And especially when you look at all your sins and your weaknesses that we all have as parents, the things we do and we don't do, that even one of our children should grow up, love the Lord God, live for Him. That's amazing. That's a miracle of grace that we should have many children who love that children of the church should grow up and love the Lord God and be godly. It's amazing that we should have even one office bearer, just one, who's blameless, who's married and he loves his wife, who's vigilant, who's sober, who's of a good behavior. In this ungodly world, that we should have even one, many godly office bearers. That's amazing. God be praised. Let's not take godliness for granted without controversy. And may that be true in our own soul. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now may Jesus keep us faithful to keep holding up that great truth of the mystery of godliness that our God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, Preached, into the, preached to the Gentiles that's still happening today, believed on in the world, and that he was received up into glory until the time he's coming again. May he keep us faithful. Amen. Father in heaven, thy word is truth. Thy word is glorious and beautiful and make it beautiful to us. Take it now and plant it deep within us that there may be the fruit of godliness to the praise of thy glorious grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.